After healing two blind men in Jericho and pronouncing salvation for the household of Zacchaeus, Jesus continues his final journey toward Jerusalem. The road between the two cities of Jericho and Jerusalem was always rough and it was always rugged and very difficult. It was filled with highwaymen. In fact, it was extremely dangerous during less busy times of the year. You might remember that the Jericho Road is the scene or the setting that Jesus uses when he gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the distance between Jericho to Jerusalem is about 17 or 1800 miles. I'm sorry, 17 or 18 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem. And it required walking uphill and ascending some 2,600 feet in altitude before reaching the Temple Mount. At this time of the year, though, the roads were very crowded, and people were headed to Jerusalem for the Passover, one of the three annual feasts under Judaism. Some scholars have suggested that the city swells to more than two million people during the time of this feast. And if it is, as John MacArthur notes, that there was one lamb offered for every 10 people, that would mean there were more than 200,000 lambs that were killed during this feast. But on this occasion, the Jews failed to realize that each of these lambs points to a single perfect sacrifice. The only one lamb's blood is going to matter is the blood of Jesus that year. As John chapter 1 and verse 29 says, as John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, Matthew's narrative proceeds from the events at Jericho and goes directly to the triumphal entry. Now, tradition holds that it was on a Sunday. And I might say, every single scholar that I read says that this day was in fact Sunday. One scholar said that it was on Monday and not Sunday, and his rationale was, if we consider him to make his triumphal entry on Monday, it would eliminate what is called today Dead Wednesday. In other words, we find things that are found on every single day except Wednesday if Jesus made his triumphal entry on Sunday. You know what I say to that? Big deal. Big deal. His triumphal entry on Sunday, no doubt, as tradition would assume. And just because nothing was recorded on Wednesday really makes no difference at all. All we know is tradition says that it was on Sunday. You know, it makes perfect sense that it would be on Sunday. How many great events that we find in the Bible, in the New Testament, that was found on Sunday? We're going to find out that later on after Jesus was crucified, that early on, on Sunday morning, the Lord's Day, he rose from the dead. So he did that on the first day of the week or on Sunday. You remember that the very same day, just a little bit later, he meets with two disciples that were on the Emmaus Road, and he preaches a sermon to them, and he begins with Moses and the prophets, and he preaches everything about himself. The first sermon preached after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you remember what those men said? Those men said, oh, didn't our hearts burn within us when he showed us the scriptures along the way? That was a very important event that happened on Sunday. Later on that night, he meets with those disciples again, his disciples back in Jerusalem. Thomas was not present, and he preaches another sermon. 
And then what about eight days later? You know, Thomas was not there with the disciples when Jesus met with them in Jerusalem the first time. The Bible says eight days later. And the way that they counted days, they counted Sunday. They counted the day you were on. For example, if I hold an eight-day meeting, it's Sunday to Sunday. You count the day you begin and the day that you end. Eight days. So when the Bible says eight days later, he meets again with his disciples. And guess who's there that time? It was, it was in fact, Thomas. First day of the week on Sunday. Furthermore, we find that the church was established on the day of Pentecost, and that was on Sunday. So just about every scholar says that this particular event happened on, no doubt, on Sunday. Also, if you can go to a Hebrew encyclopedia, which I referenced, you will also find, and really everybody agreed with this, that this is an event that happened in the month of April. Now, here's the problem. The problem wasn't, or the discrepancy wasn't, the day or the month. The discrepancy between scholars was what was the year. And we have said our whole life, or I have, that Jesus was crucified in A.D. 33, that the church was established in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33. I've shown you church buildings in the Philippines, and it says Church of Christ on the building, and says established A.D. 33. But you can notice a, a variety of scholars, and you will find that some say, based on that calendar, that it was A.D. 30, while others said A.D. 33. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I want to just say this. I have always believed it was A.D. 33. I still believe it, that it was A.D. 33. But just give me a couple of minutes, and I'm going to show you why. I'm going to give you a reason why I believe it was A.D. 33. So if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but at least now I have a reason. Let me notice with you the following. There are seven clues regarding the date of the crucifixion. Seven clues. Number one clue. It was during the high priesthood of Caiaphas. We know about that crumb. We know all about Caiaphas, right? He reigned from A.D. 18 to A.D. 36. So now we have a starting point. Let's go further. Let's go even more, breaking it down. During the governorship of Pontius Pilate, Jesus was crucified. He served as governor from A.D. 26 to A.D. 36, narrowing it down even more. What else? It was after the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, which was in A.D. 29. Now we're narrowing it down even more. What else do we know about the crucifixion? We know this, that Jesus was crucified on Friday. It was the day of preparation. I'm not going to go deep into this. You've heard my sermon about that. Periscue is the day for preparation. That's what the word is. And that word literally means the day before the Sabbath. It was such a well-known word that it actually became a technical term for Friday. So we know that. It was during the high priesthood of Caiaphas. It was during the governorship of Pontius Pilate. It was after the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. And it has to be on a Friday. All right. Here's the problem. There's a whole lot of Fridays between AD 29 and AD 36. So this is a very special Friday. You know what it was? It was a Friday at Passover. I read in a Hebrew 
encyclopedia this week that they call this day Ereb Shabbat. Ereb Shabbat. You know what that means? That word actually means, that phrase means the eve of the Sabbath. So, it's on a Friday. What Friday? It has to be on the eve of the Sabbath. It's Periskewe Day. It's that Friday. Okay, now watch this. This is a list of all eight Passovers that happened over the years, between the years AD 29 and AD 36, and the night that they began. So remember this. If we're talking about when the Lord is crucified, it is the night that the Passover began. It has to be on Friday, and that's when it, uh, of the Sabbath. Of these eight years, only two fell on Friday. So here's the two dates. It's either April 7th, A.D. 30, or it's April 3rd, A.D. 33. How can we know? Those are the two. How can we know? Well, first of all, there are three Passovers, or there were three Passovers during the ministry of Jesus. Three of them. One was in the beginning, one was in the middle, and one was at the end. Now, you know what that means? That means that the ministry of Jesus is at least two years long. Now, we believe it to be about three and a half. But it's at least two years long. Now, remember, just doing the math and counting the days, it was in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. That is AD 29. Has to be after that. Jesus has to be crucified after that. We find here that Jesus' ministry was at least two years. AD 29, AD 30. Guess what? The math doesn't add up. 80, 30's out. There's not enough years. What else? On Friday, April 3rd, 80, 33. But what about going a little bit further? You know, the Bible says in Luke's account that Jesus was crucified. And it was the third hour of the day that he was nailed to the cross. That's 9 a.m. At the sixth hour or noon, the Bible says there was darkness over all the earth. And at three o'clock, Jesus said, or the ninth hour, Jesus says to his father, it is finished. And he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. So Jesus died on Friday, April 3rd, AD 33, at 3 p.m. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now I will tell you this. If scholars are wrong about April, about that day... I know they're not wrong about this because I read it in the Bible. I deferred to scholars. I de deferred to Jewish scholars in the Hebrew encyclopedia because that was the day of the Passover. All right. Now, that's when Passover began. But even if that is not the case, we know for a fact it's on Periskewe Day. It's Friday. We know it's the eve of the Sabbath. We know that it was at 3 o'clock, and the years tell us it has to be A.D. 33. All right, well, as my father-in-law would say, that's free, no charge on that. But I thought that was rather interesting. And if I'm going to keep saying it's AD 33, I felt like I ought to have a reason. I'd give you a reason. This is my reason. Okay. Let's go back five days. Let's go back five days now. And when we do, we find Jesus triumphantly enters the city of Jerusalem. And as they came near the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples into a village. And he said these words, saying to them... Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. Now, it's not certain what village the Lord's talking about. 
For example, it could have been Bethany. It could have been, and by the way, how you pronounce the word, I'll just share it with you. The majority of scholars say that the way to pronounce the, the name of this village is Bethphage. The majority of people say that's what it was. But I got to tell you, you can Google it and it'll give you a whole lot of sources. And I heard all manner of ideas. Bethphage, 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 whatever it is. I'm going to go with Bethphage because that was the majority of them. It could have been Bethany and it could have been Bethphage to go in and get a donkey. Now... Understand this, though. Really what matters is, is Bethany, Bethphage, and Gethsemane were all on the Mount of Olives. And as soon as they enter the village, Jesus says this. There's going to be a cult there. You know the word cult means comes from a word polon, and it means the young of any animal. So we understand that. We understand about a cult. We know all about cults. My question is, though, have you ever wondered why a donkey? Why a donkey? J.W. McGarvey says numerous scripture references show that the donkey was held in high estimation in the east. In fact, the sons of the judges used them. David's mule, for example, was used at the coronation of Solomon. Look at Judges chapter 10 and verse 4. Now he has 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. They also had 30 towns, which are called Havoth Jar to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. Another passage, and there's really a point to this. Stay with me on this. 1 Kings 1 and 33. The king also said to them, Take with you the servants of our Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule. Interesting. In the specific case of Jesus here, it is stated that no man had ever sat on the colt. If the colt had been used by men, as one scholar said, it would have been unfit for sacred purposes. Let me give you a passage. In the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 19 and verse 2. This is the ordinance of the law, which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring you a red heifer without blemish, in which there is no defect, and on which a yoke has never come. Now, in other words, if a human had used it, it would have been unfit for that kind of use. And the same is with Jesus. But in addition to this theme, though, of being unused, it wasn't foreign with Jesus. The theme is echoed elsewhere in his life. He was obviously born of a virgin. He was buried in an unused tomb. So all of those things are certainly a common theme in the life of Jesus. But the main reason that, that a donkey had to be used is because it fulfilled messianic prophecy. In Zechariah chapter 9... And verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. All right. The thrust of all this is that the king would come in peace. Now, please hold that thought. Please hear what I just said and hold that thought. The king would come in peace. 
Zechariah also predicted that the coming of Zion's king would be a glorious event. The people would rejoice and they would shout. And you know that prediction really happened. That happened on that day as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Unfortunately, the praise of men is short-lived. And those voices that hail victory are going to in just a few days say, crucify him, crucify him. Now most people think about a donkey as a humble beast of burden. I got to tell you, I have totally missed this point all my life. I have totally missed the point of why Jesus rode a donkey. And in my mind, it's because of what most people do. We think about a donkey as a beast of burden. In other words, what donkeys do is they pull something or they pack something. Nobody likes, nobody wants to ride a donkey, by the way. I was around horses my whole life. And, you know, you can't, we used to say, you can't win the Kentucky Derby on the back of a donkey. Just the way that it is. But in Palestine at that time, donkeys, I read, were different. They were smaller in stature. They were strong in frame. They were quick and fast. And you know what else? They looked better than the ugly-looking donkeys that we know today. There's nothing uglier than a mule. Quite different back then. And I always thought this too, folks. I always thought this. I always thought that Jesus rode in on the back of a donkey as part of his humiliation. That's number one. I also thought that he rode on the back of a donkey because he was going to be a king and his kingdom is not going to be an earthly kingdom. Therefore, he would not ride in on a horse like an earthly king. He would ride in on a donkey and that would distinguish his kingdom from the kingdoms of the world. Guess what? That is not true. That is not true. Do you know when a king rode to war? You know what he did? When a king went to war, you know what he did? He rode a horse. When a king came back and entered in peace, amazing, he rode a donkey. What the Lord was doing is, he was coming in. He was going to establish a kingdom. The Bible says it is a kingdom of peace. In fact, Jesus is our king. We know that. But what is Jesus also called? He's called the prince of peace. So when Jesus rode a donkey, it was not part of his humiliation. He was coming in peace to establish a kingdom of peace too. Okay, but here's the problem. In the Lord's poverty and the poverty of the disciples, he didn't have a donkey. So now we have to borrow one. And so he's going to send them into a village, as the Bible says, and he's going to offer some more instruction. He says this, and if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now, I got to tell you, I read a number of scholars. You know what they said? They said, we can't really know what he meant when he said Lord. Because there are various words in the English language that are from the original that are translated in the English language with many different names. For example, when Jesus was living, many people called him Lord, Didascalus, and it meant teacher, master, or Lord. So many times people called Jesus Lord, but they weren't calling him Lord and Savior by saying that. 
I don't think that has anything at all to do with this. Do you? This is not somebody calling the Lord anything. This is the Lord referring to himself. And I think what he's saying is, when you go into a village and you untie the colt and his mother, if somebody says, what are you doing with them? You just say, the Lord has need of them. Why not? Jesus said, you tell them the Lord said. Further on that, some scholars said this was a miracle. It was a miraculous event. Some scholars said it was not a miracle, but Jesus actually set it up in advance. Some said that he didn't set it up in advance. It just shows his supernatural knowledge. Really, it doesn't matter, though. And it's amazing how many pages scholars have written about this very idea. All we know is for sure is whatever it was, the Lord said, this is what you tell them. This is the password, whatever. You tell them the Lord needs them. And by the way, the Lord was certainly capable of doing any of the three things that I said. Could have set it up, could have been a miracle, and certainly would have shown his divine knowledge of everything. So, then he says this, and immediately he will send them. You know what that means? That means that the Lord tells them, you go get the donkeys, you say the Lord needs them, but when he's done with them, they will be returned. That's what that phrase means. All right, let's go to Mark's account, Mark 11 and 6. And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. Verse 7, then they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw clothes on it, and he sat on it. Now, you're talking about a colt that has never been broken. You're talking about a colt. No one had ever sat on. So therefore, there was never a saddle on the back of this colt. So you know what the disciples do? The disciples make a makeshift saddle blanket, if you will. And they took their, no doubt, outer garments. The thin outer garment, the thin cloak. You've heard me talk about cloaks, outer garments. No doubt that's what they did. They took their outer garments like cloaks and they laid it on the back of this donkey for the Lord to sit on. Now, uh, but in addition to that, I found it was very interesting. This is also a form of royal homage. Using garments is the form of royal homage. Plummer said this and points out 2 Kings chapter 9 and verse 13. That each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him on the top of the steps, and they blew trumpets saying, Jehu is king. So not only did it need a saddle, and it didn't have one, the garments were used for that purpose. But it also was a way of royal homage to Jesus by doing that very thing. Luke's account says that they helped Jesus get on the back of this donkey. Now let's stay with Mark's account. What else did they do in Mark 11 and verse 8? And many spread their clothes on the road. And others cut down leafy branches from the trees, and they spread them on the road. Picture, if you will, this royal caravan. There are those that left Galilee with Jesus and the twelve. There were those that perhaps followed him after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in Bethany. And then all of a sudden they're going to get there, 
And you're going to have a mass number of people, a multitude of people, Jews if you will, that had gathered for the purpose of the Passover. All kinds of people are there. Here's the problem though. The people expect the Lord to establish an earthly kingdom and to finally put an end to their oppression and to do something about Rome. Isn't that amazing? How many people were following Jesus? Not because Jesus performed miracles. Not because Jesus preached things that no man had ever preached and speaking as one who has authority that they said. The greatest man that ever lived, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the only one that lived his life in sinless perfection. There were people that were following him not because they thought he was the Messiah from a spiritual standpoint, but they thought he was going to be the Messiah from a physical standpoint, a national standpoint. And they thought that finally Jesus was going to put an end to their oppression. So this is the picture. You got some of the crowd going in front of Jesus. You got some of the crowd following after Jesus. You got the great multitude that's already there at the Passover. And you know what J.W. McGarvey said? He said this. The multitude was so large that their numbers enabled them to spread a carpet of clothing all the way from the top of Mount Olivet to the gate of the city. Amazing. Amazing. Spreading their clothes, by the way, in the road is also a token of people's homage and respect. In essence, they were saying, we bow to your authority. Now... This is why the religious world calls it Palm Sunday. Because of this, there were also those that took leafy branches. Now, they took leafy branches. In John's account, it says that those leafy branches were palm branches. Now, interesting about that. They came out with palm branches in their hands as if to salute a king with symbols of triumph, hence the triumphal entry into Jerusalem that Jesus made. Now, what are palm branches symbolic of? I looked this up. Palm branches historically were used as a symbol of the following. A symbol of salvation, a symbol of national victory, and a symbol of joy. So you got all this going on. People walking in front of Jesus, people following Jesus. You got all these coats, all this clothing on the, on the ground as the road extended. And then here comes people waving the branches. They're waving the palm branches as a symbol of salvation, national victory, and finally, with joy, that someone's going to lead us away from oppression. The saddest thing is, though, is they were more interested in what Jesus could do for them politically than what he could do for them spiritually. Now, when we go back to Matthew's account, we find what happens next. Matthew's account, we'll go to Matthew 21. And again, we're going back and forth between the accounts. But in Matthew 21 and verse 9, then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, first of all, the phrase son of David is a messianic title. Don't you remember in Matthew chapter 12 and also in Mark chapter 3? 
Jesus cast out a demon. You remember what the multitude said? As they looked upon it, they said, wait a minute. Is this the son of David? Meaning, is this the Messiah? And we know what happens. We know what happens. They said, no, he's not the Messiah. He does this by the power of Beelzebub. But the people said, isn't this the son of David? That's a messianic title. All right, but what does Hosanna mean? What do you think about when you think of Hosanna? I'm going to tell you what I used to think. I used to think when they said Hosanna, they were praising the Lord to the highest. Not so. The word Hosanna means this. It is a Greek form of a Hebrew appeal to God for help. It is a Greek form of a Hebrew appeal for God to help. In fact, it comes from the Hebrew phrase, Hoshia Na. And you know what that means? It actually means, save now, we pray, or give victory. They weren't saying, oh, we praise you, Jesus. They were saying, give victory, Jesus. And they were talking about national things. Now, I love this because when all this was going on, when all of it was going on, the Pharisees were so irritated that they tried to squelch the outcry. And in Luke's account, it tells us what Jesus said. Don't you love that? Jesus said these words in Luke 19 and 14. I tell you, if they shall hold their peace, in other words, the, the people that are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, and all that. He said, the stones would immediately cry out. The Lord says, even the stones would cry out if they kept quiet. Pharisees were disgusted. They didn't want any part of it. So the first time he says, they say Hosanna, they say it like this. Hosanna to the son of David, which was a messianic title. But they take it a step further. Then they say the next time, they say, Hosanna in the highest. You know what that means, in the highest? It means actually literally in the original, Hosanna in the heavens. That's what it means. Hosanna in the heavens. In other words, this is an appeal to God in heaven to save and bless the people. That's what they were saying. So... I'll summarize it like this, like I just said a moment ago. When they cried out Hosanna, that was not an acclamation. What's an acclamation? An acclamation is a loud and enthusiastic approval, typically welcoming or honoring someone or something. And for my whole life, I thought that's what that meant. It's not an acclamation, folks. You know what it is? It's a prayer. It's a Hebrew prayer. This is what it means. And Hosanna is a Greek form of a Hebrew appeal for God to help, saying, save us now, we pray. But you know, the Lord knew all that. The Lord has supreme knowledge of everything. He knew all about that. But he allows them to go right ahead and shout the words that they're shouting because he is openly affirming his kingship as the son of David. And that brings us to verse 10 of Matthew 21. And when he had come to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? 
You know, Matthew takes his reader directly to Jesus' grand entrance, but if you look at the other gospel accounts, there's more. If you look at the other gospel accounts, you find that Mark adds that Jesus came into the temple. Luke adds that just as he sees the city coming into view, he begins to weep. Take yourself back in your mind's eye to when Jesus sees the city and he weeps. As he comes to the top of Mount Olives to begin his final descent, a glorious view obviously meets his eyes. Before him lies the valley of Jehoshaphat, and across the Kidron, a city with its temple jutting up upward, as one man said, toward the heavens. No place on earth is more holy, and no city more representative of God's relationship with man. It's a sight that causes pilgrims' heart to swell and pray with praise and pride. But Jesus sees it differently, knowing that in a few short years, every vestige of Jerusalem's glory will be destroyed by angry Rome. And soon the light-hearted, babbling voices of praise will be drowned in the blood of slaughter. Yes, God's mighty nation will fall because of her spiritual decay. The temple's massive stones will crumble and lie in silent ruin. The scene is too much for the Lord to bear. And so with divine love for Israel and the awful anticipation of things to come, he weeps. Don't you see the human side of Jesus here? People in Jerusalem under the old law and those that had rejected Jesus hated Jesus. When Jesus looks down on the valley of Jehoshaphat across the Kidron into the city, he looks at this mighty, powerful city, a city that once represented God's people, and he weeps. He weeps because of their spiritual decay, and they will be destroyed, and that happened with the destruction of Jerusalem. And incidentally, when that happened with the destruction of Jerusalem, Josephus said 1.1 million Jews were killed. Another 110,000 were taken captive. But then Josephus says that the soldiers of Rome pulled back. Please get this. The soldiers of Rome pulled back. And when they did, every Christian got out. Every Christian. But Jesus looks down upon Jerusalem and he weeps. He weeps. That's the human side of our Savior. Then the Bible says in verse 21 here that the city was moved. Interesting phrase here, moved. One scholar said, Robinson said, it's the word that describes being shaken as by an earthquake. I'm going to tell you, Jesus was a boat rocker. He set this whole thing on edge. Here he comes. And they were moved. And then they ask the question, well, who is this? And, you know, I would imagine that there's a lot of people that were there that thought about Jesus in different ways. But when they ask the question, who is this? The answer is in verse 11. And that is, the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth. Now, that sounds good, doesn't it? Prophet of Nazareth. What they're saying is, they're saying, they're giving him the credit for being a prophet of Nazareth of Galilee, but they are stopping short of proclaiming him as the Messiah. They're just not going to do it. 
Some of the people there surely believed he was the Messiah. Others that were there surely hoped that he was. And maybe still others didn't know. This is quite a day. Quite a day. If you look at the chronological sequence of this day, it's now late. And you got to go to Mark's account to find out what Jesus does. The Bible says that at the end of that long day, what a day it was. They left Bethany, triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But now it's the end of the day and Jesus goes to Bethany for the night. Goes back to Bethany. The next time we pick up our narrative, though, guess what? It's Monday. It's 6 a.m. And the Lord is hungry. And he's coming toward Jerusalem again. He's going to head that way to cleanse the temple. And on the way, he stumbles across a withered fig tree and he curses the tree. He goes into the gates of Jerusalem and cleanses the temple. And then he preaches a little sermon about the meaning of the withered fig tree. And that's next. That's next. But today, this will suffice for our lesson. This is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And we're so thankful that Jesus was willing to head that direction. He knew all along. He knew everything that was going to happen. There are many powerful things that happen in a five-day span. And we want to talk about those things in a series as we move forward. But today, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.